The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information, please visit our website at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Dan Murphy, Senior Program Officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and with me is Dr. David Finkelstein, who is Vice President and Director of CNA China Studies, which focuses on U.S.-China relations. China's changing role in the world order and emerging trends within China. A retired U.S. Army officer who is widely published, Dr. Finkelstein is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, and the Army War College. He has held command and staff positions at the platoon, company, battalion, and major Army command levels. He also held significant China-related positions at the Pentagon as an advisor to the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He has served on the faculty at West Point, where he taught Chinese history. Dr. Finkelstein, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So, when China watchers think about U.S.-China security cooperation, I think we tend to focus on the last two plus decades, which have been rather troubled. The period of the 1980s tends to be forgotten. So help us put the security relationship in historical perspective by briefly describing the relationship during the 1980s. Well,、uh, during the 1980s, of course,、uh, we had a very unique situation,、uh, especially in the early 80s, where both、uh, friends in China and、uh, the U.S. government had common concerns about、uh, the Soviet Union at the time. So there was a co- very common、uh, and strong、uh, strategic bond、uh, between the two at the time. So,、uh, and of course, just to remind your audience,、uh, U.S.-China military relations, which I consider a subset of security relations, U.S.-China military relations did not formally begin until 1980.、Uh, so we've we've only been at this for about 30 years on the military side with with、uh, the Chinese People's Liberation Army. But getting back to what you asked,、uh, at the time, of course, there was tremendous concern about the foreign policies of the former Soviet Union. Uh, not only in Europe but also in Asia,、uh, they were in league with、uh, the Socialist Republic of Vietnam,、uh, which was on its own adventures in、uh, Kampuchea or Cambodia,、uh, what have you.、Uh, there were problems、uh, with the Soviets in Socotra off the coast of Africa.、Uh, we were, there were concerns about the Soviets in the plains of Europe. So the U.S. and China had a common strategic、uh, point around which to rally. And engage in a good deal of consultation,、uh, coordination, and in some cases even cooperation. Moving now to the present day, what do the situations in the East China and South China seas mean for the U.S.-China security relationship? Well, I think that、uh, maritime issues obviously are going to become a new area where the U.S. and China are going to have to deconflict. And、uh, and work out uh, uh, some sort of understanding.、Uh, the United States government、uh, has a long-standing and very firm commitment to freedom of the seas and the ability to access、uh, international high seas.、Uh, that that this government in Washington has has、uh, posited. As a an important national security interest for centuries. In fact,、uh, you know, if you go back, if you go back to、uh, back to 1812,、uh, the War of 1812 between the British and the United States was about the high seas.、Uh, when you look about look at、uh, U.S. operations off 
the coast of Africa in the early uh, 1800s, the Barbary Coast. It was about freedom of the seas. So, so we've, got, we've got a situation here now uh, that, that has the potential, and let me emphasize the potential, not the inevitability, but the potential to be problematic. So what is it? On the one hand, uh, the Chinese uh, party state is moving further and further out off of its coast. Right? For the first time, really, in the history of China, uh, China is extending its maritime uh, strategic depth off the coast of China. And, of course, this is, this is an area in the Western Pacific where the U.S. operates and will continue to operate. And, and we have a certain amount of disagreements about uh, interpretations of the United Nations uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, what is permitted by militaries and exclusive economic zones, what is not. Uh, the U.S. is very firm with most of the countries uh, who sign up to UNCLOS and that uh, military activities in exclusive economic zones are permitted. The Chinese feel that uh, exclusive economic zones uh, are not there for foreign militaries to operate in. So we, we have some issues there. Uh, we also have issues between China and other countries in the region. Frankly, it's the problems between China and the other countries in the region, not problems between China and the United States, which are concerning and, and heightening. Uh, so uh, we, we have this remarkable situation now where, where China, uh, for, for various reasons, has maritime disputes with almost all of its maritime neighbors. It has maritime disputes with Korea. It has maritime disputes with uh, Japan. It has maritime disputes with Vietnam. It has maritime disputes with the Philippines and, and some others out of Southeast Asia. And, and I point this out not, not to imply, not for one second, uh, that, that this is all of China's doing. That's not what I'm trying to say. But we do have a situation where, where China now and the countries of the region, so let's, let's reverse that and say that all the countries in the region have a good number of territorial disputes with each other, and this is complicating the international maritime security situation out, out in that part of the world. And that affects the United States. And it affects the United States uh, because of our commitment to freedom of navigation, because we have treaty alliances with some of the countries who are parties to these, these disputes, uh, because the U.S. is going to insist on its ability to uh, have freedom of the seas in some of these areas that are contested. So, so we, have, we have a very complicated situation here. I want to pick up on something you said about freedom of navigation, because I hear this brought up by the United States now and again. And when I mention it to my friends in China, they always say, we've never had a problem with freedom of navigation. We don't have that intention, and it never will happen. So it's not an issue. Where are these, where is this miscommunication originating? Well, the miscommunication is, is about what is the definition of freedom of navigation, disagreements about freedom of navigation for which types of maritime or uh, vessels or aerospace entities and in which areas. Right. So, so we, have, we have a lot of terminology to work out. We have a lot of definitions that we have to find common ground on. And, uh, and I've heard the same arguments as you, right? And, you know, the Chinese, uh, to a certain degree, uh, have a good argument. They, they, have not, uh, they have not impeded commercial traffic from going through the common sea lanes of communica uh, communication. Yes. However, they have interfered, and other countries have also interfered with China, in the commercial activities of each other in contested areas. 
Right. So nobody, nobody is accusing the Chinese of trying to block transiting of the choke points, the, the sea lanes of communication uh, throughout Southeast Asia. Uh, what we have is a situation where, uh, in selective cases, where, where there is questionable sovereignty over certain pieces of water or certain areas of water that, that there are contentious activities going on. Very, comp very complicated. And you, know, you get to the point where you, where you really need maritime international lawyers to sit at the table because the terminology is very technical, very legal, and has very specific meaning. I want to stay on the topic of communications for a minute. The military dimension of the pivot or rebalance, whatever one wants to call it, has been understood in very different ways in Beijing and Washington. I wonder if you could talk about the different ways it's been understood in the two capitals. I ask this because I think there's been a real disconnect there. Where does this misunderstanding originate and how might it affect the relationship? Just to parrot back what I believe uh, the U.S. government is trying to do. When the Obama administration, even before the Obama administration came to office, I am told, there was a lot of studying going on, a lot of questions that were being asked that says, we're going to be leaving Southwest Asia eventually. What parts, where, where are important parts of the world where the U.S. has critical national interests across all areas, political interests, economic interests, socio-cultural interests, and yes, military and security interests, are there parts of the world where the U.S. has today and tomorrow and in the future growing national interests where the U.S. is currently underinvested? Now, that term, underinvested, is a term that you hear from the U.S. government. And the answer they came up with was that future U.S. national security interests and national security uh, written large, political, economic, socio-informational, cultural, and yes, military and security, is going to reside in the future in Asia. And so you had, on one hand, a strategic, a strategic study that goes on that says the future is in East Asia. At the same time, the administration is confronting constrained budgets because of the fiscal challenges that the government is having. And that meant that as the U.S. government goes forward and they make decisions about where to make investments, political, military, security, economic, and socio-informational and cultural, they're going to have to prioritize where they make their investments. So if, in fact, East uh, Asia is important to future U.S. national interests. Therefore, conscious decisions have to be made to ensure that all of the elements of national power are at play in that region in order to secure our national interests. So, so the U.S. Uh, puts together now, and the, the term pivot and rebalance, uh, pivot is not a good term. Uh, I think the White House would always prefer rebalance. Uh, pivot sounds nice, but it's it's when when the, when the government my understanding and I don't speak for the government of course but when the US government talks about its rebalance to Asia they're talking about two things at the same time rebalancing our investments from other parts of the world to Asia 
and realize that it's not just about Asia. You can't, it can't be exclusively about Asia. The U.S. is not going to jettison its interests or its presence or its investments in Europe. And, you know, it's, the U.S. is not going to be able to leave the Middle East, even if it wants to, right? But they're making conscious decisions to reinvest in Asia because there was a real perception also in the region. After 9-11, that the U.S. had abandoned the region, the U.S. had no staying power in the region, and the U.S. was going to focus on its so-called global war on terror at the expense of everything else. So, so the, but getting back to my point, rebalancing two things, making sure that our investments across all the elements of national power are in balance compared to where our interests lie. That's the first dimension of rebalancing. And the second dimension of rebalancing is rebalancing within Asia itself, because traditionally, most U.S. investments, political, military, economic, socio-economic, and political, cultural, had been in Northeast Asia with Japan, Korea, for historical reasons. And there was a real feeling that the U.S. was underinvested in Southeast Asia and South Asia. So you have two, those two dimensions of rebalancing going on. And the, the U.S. perspective, again, just to channel the U.S. for the moment, is that the U.S. has been a Pacific nation since 1792, when the Empress of China first made its uh, epic voyage around, the, uh, south, around South America. Uh, the U.S. has had a Pacific coast since the 1840s. And the U.S. considers itself a Pacific nation, not just an Atlantic nation. And the U.S. feels a need to exercise its presence in many ways as a Pacific nation to be part of. We are, the idea that we are not an outlier, we are not a stranger, we are not an interloper, we are an integral part of the Pacific Rim Sure. For the same reasons that the Chi- that Chinese friends are dealing with Argentina or parts of the so that that's the American perspective. Now the Chinese perspective. Uh, now it depends on who you speak to in China, right? Uh, just like in the United States, if you know, if 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 you want to know what the state of relations is between the U.S. and China, you have to ma- you have to spend about a week doing it because depending upon which organization or which you go to the State Department, you get one story. You get go to the Pentagon, you hear another story. Go to Commerce, Treasury, you hear different uh, stories about what's the state of the U.S.-China relationship. So if you ask what's you know what's the Chinese view on rebalancing, well that depends on who you speak to. But let me just talk give you some some of my initial uh, feelings about where the Chinese foreign policy, security, and military shitungs or establishments are at this point. Uh, I think there's a general feeling amongst the foreign policy, security, and military communities in China that the U.S. policy of rebalancing is going to complicate their security interests in the region. Where those different communities differ is in the degree to which they think the U.S. policy of rebalancing Mm -hmm. is going to complicate China's national interests. Uh, Without question, uh, my understanding is that the Chinese People's Liberation Army is the uh, member of the national security community in China that feels that the rebalancing policy uh, has the most deleterious implications for Chinese national security. Uh, to the degree that, that some, some friends uh, with whom I've spoke believe that 
this is not about uh, the U.S.'s uh, role as a Pacific nation that uh, in extremists. This is about the containment of China. This is about it's aimed at China. And uh, in, some, in some quarters in China, uh, this is confirming their worst fears. You know, uh, it, it's interesting to note that some Chinese friends and party documents still write and believe that the U.S.'s ultimate objectives towards China is to split China and westernize China. Xi hua zhonghua, fan hua zhonghua. Do you yeah. think that the United States could have done a better job with messaging on the rebalance? Well, uh, you know... Uh, you're ne- <laughs> perfection is never going to overtake any group of bureaucracies. Uh, you could make those arguments, so you could you can second guess uh, how they've rolled it out. You can second guess disconnects between certain bureaucracies and others. Uh, at the same time, uh, there there are there are organizations in China for which it wouldn't matter how you packaged it; they'd only hear one thing, uh, and so. And so what you're really getting at is, is a real issue that, that's always been of concern to me, that neither country does a very good job in strategic communications. Uh, we think we're doing a good job. We think we're getting the message through. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we're not. Uh, uh, it, it's a remarkable thing after so many years that we, we really do have trouble communicating with each other in some venues. Now, on the other hand... One is told that in the very highest levels of discussions, track one official meetings between the highest advisors of the respective governments, there is a good deal of understanding. So, um, and I happen to believe that. So on the one hand, I, I think that we've got serious leaders in both China and the U.S. who are talking clearly and frankly to each other I think they are understanding each other, but around them are others who are talking about the message in different ways. Right. I can see we've only got a few few minutes left, so let me ask you one last series of questions. Can you give us a few reasons for optimism in the security relationship, a few of your top reasons for concern, and on balance, how optimistic or pessimistic do you feel about the future of the U.S.-China security relationship? Well, well again... Uh, I tend to divide the security relationship uh, into two two parts. Uh, one where uh, U.S. and Chinese governments writ large uh, deal with important bilateral, regional, and international issues. And then as a subset of that, the military relationship. I think people would be surprised at how much coordination there is to a certain degree between the U.S. and Chinese governments on important regional issues. I think people would be surprised. You know, whether it's, we may, we may not agree with how to approach some of these issues, and in some cases we may have different national interests at stake, but I think we've proven that we can deal, we can talk to each other on important issues such as Sudan, uh, on Korea, uh, Iran might be problematic. It's always going to be problematic, and Syria is going to be a problem. But you know, we're at the point where uh, we're in a really terrific place. You know, where you, what movie you're seeing, or w- how you're describing the movie depends on when you came in on the movie. If you just come into the movie recently, all you do is read about problems. Uh, but if you've been watching the movie for 30 years, uh, as I have, you, you cannot help but be struck by how much amazing progress has been made 
in in working together on a host of issues. So, so I think that uh, uh, because the U.S. and China and its important uh, top leaders understand that uh, we all have incredibly important national interests at stake in these in these issues, uh, they're trying to find ways within domestic political constraints, which are also a factor, uh, and with in the rel- within considerations of our particularistic and selfish national interests to try to come up with solutions to some of the world's greatest problems. Sometimes we do a good job, sometimes we don't. So, you know, at, at a very macro and, uh, and grand strategic level, I'm relatively optimistic that the U.S. and China are going to find ways to deal with the big issues facing, e- facing the, the global community. Uh, I'm more optimistic than less. On the, on the military front, uh, uh, I'm a very jaded observer of this, uh, of this military relationship. Uh, I think I, I once counted up uh, out of the 30 years that we've had military relations, fully 12 of those years were in suspension or, or some figure like that, almost a decade lost. Um, uh, number one, the military relationship should never, uh, should never be confused with the larger security relationship. So you, you, have to, you have to deconflate the two. Uh, secondly, uh, when you deal with military officers, you know uh, these, these are these are these are war fighters on both sides. They're not diplomats. They like to think they are, and some people talk about them. But at the end of the day, uh, having been in, in the military, what militaries do is they they hope for the best, as the Chinese say, but they prepare for the worst, right? Uh, so uh, on the one hand, there there are a host of issues that are going to continue to bedevil the U.S.-China military relationship. What are they? Number one, of course, is, is the issue of Taiwan, right? Uh, the PLA has been told by the Chinese Communist Party leadership to be capable of having operational contingencies for a Taiwan scenario. That's their job. That's what they've been told to do. The U.S. military has been told that it may may have to have, you know, its own, its own uh, 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 approach to the Taiwan situation. So the Taiwan Relations Act, of course, is vague about it. Uh, there's nothing definitive about what people are told to do, but it's very clear that the U.S. government is, is going to, uh, based on its own assessment, provide defensive uh, weapons and, and services to Taiwan. So this is a problem. Uh, but, you know, uh, isn't it amazing how well we've been able to manage this Right, uh, in spite of of some of the moments of crisis, and there have been tremendous crises over the years, 1995 and 96, and then of course Kimoy and Matsu in the 1950s, right? Uh, problems over arms sales in the 90s and the 2000s. Yet, yet we both sides have been able to keep a lid on this. So that that in itself is encouraging, right? So, but the Taiwan issue is out there. Uh, another issue that that is going to be uh, problematic is uh, is is in the maritime domain. The idea that for the first time in its history, the Chinese military is is uh, flexing maritime capabilities. Right, uh, that's something new. It's not just something new for the Chinese. It's something new for all the countries in the region and the United States. And the Chinese just don't have a lot of experience. Uh, in dealing with other foreign militaries on the high seas, so so we need to find ways to operate safely in proximity of each other. That's that's going to be a problem. Uh, uh, we also have issues 
We also have issues with uh, uh, long-term suspicions about long-term uh, intentions. But that's just not confined to the military. That's not just not a military issue. That's across the security communities. So there are some issues out there. And frankly, we, we, don't, have, we, we don't have at the moment a galvanizing common strategic issue that is so, so clear and present that these other issues get swept under the rug as they were during the bad old days of the Soviet Union, which takes us back right. to your original question. So now, having said that, I think that the, the leaders of the two militaries would like to have a good relationship. You've outlined some of the major concerns in the relationship, but overall, it sounds like you feel optimistic that we've been able to manage these issues in the past and we'll be able to manage them moving forward into the future. Yes, but, but there are some realities, okay? I mean, I think some of the real you know, the U.S. and China are never going to be allies, all right? Uh, the U.S. and Chinese military and defense establishments uh, may have a profound respect for each other as, as fellow professionals, but uh, these two organizations are not going to be very close. And so we have to, we have to manage this very carefully. Well, on that note, I think we'll have to wrap it up. But Dr. Finkelstein, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure.